Tucker Carlson, the Guam National Guard, and a 60-day stand-down so the Department of Defense can look for extremists in its ranks. Is the military becoming too involved in domestic politics? I'll discuss all this and more with Havoc Journal writers Stephen B. Lewis, Dave Hartman, and Kevin Wilson. More importantly, we get through the episode with no major technical issues. There might be some minor ones. I mean, Steve's earbuds are crappy. I think Kevin finishes or almost finishes a bottle of whatever it is he was drinking. And we're not sure yet. We haven't confirmed this, but it is possible that Dave Hartman may have advised us all to go hunting so we can, and this is where this might be a direct quote, so we can play with our meat, end quote. And if he did, in fact, say that, I'm kicking myself that I didn't catch it in the episode. Anyway, this week, we're putting the havoc in Havoc Journal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Alright guys, well, welcome to the second episode of the Weekly Havoc. It's a roundtable discussion of the week's events from the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Kevin Wilson is a 13-year veteran of the North Carolina Army National Guard. He has spent time in Syria, he has spent time in Kuwait, and he has spent time in Egypt. He is currently with Right to Bear, which is a group working to bring responsible firearm ownership to communities traditionally neglected by mainstream gun culture. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, no worries. Hey, are you the president of Right to Bear? Or are you just I a client? Am. Do you just work there? You are. Okay. Uh, I just work there. I'm, <laughs> uh, I mainly handle rifle stuff. I'm working on getting concealed carry instructor permits, but rifles what I know. So that's what I do. Very cool. We're going to talk about that a little bit later too. Um, Stephen B. Lewis. Steve is our... I don't want to say he's our token civilian because there has been one episode where we didn't have a civilian on, but I'm going to go with token civilian for right now. He is a high school and college football coach with many former athletes of his having joined the military post 9-11, which led to his interest in veterans affairs. He is also the son of a West Point graduate and the grandson of a West Point graduate. He is also associated with Comfort Walk which is a three-day, 70-mile walk on Memorial Day weekend for Comfort Farms, which is operated by combat veteran John Jackson. The walk is named for Captain Kyle Comfort, who was killed in Afghanistan on May 8th, 2010. And Steve has a book project coming up about a striker uh, combat regiment's two deployments to Iraq from 2006 to 2008. Steve, welcome. Thanks so much for having me here, Chris. Hey, it's my pleasure. And I wanted we we're going to talk again about the book and the comfort walk a little bit later because both those are worth mining. Dave Hartman is a former Army and Army Reserve officer. He served from 1994 to 2006. He had one wild year in Afghanistan in 2003 to 04 and a car wreck on Bagram Road 3 days before he was coming home ended his army career. Dave, were you medically separated? Is that what happened? Yes, yeah. It took a little while for the Army Reserve to sort all that out back in the early days, but yeah. Yeah, as everything takes the Army Reserve a long time <laughs> to figure out, so that makes sense. Um, now, Dave, you've gone on to have spend your entire civilian career as a consulting engineer. You have a wife and three grown children. Really glad you could join us. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. 
So guys, the topic today is, is the military becoming too involved in domestic politics? I don't want to make too much of this. I don't want to be too clickbaity uh, by just throwing this out there. But obviously, a big reason we're doing this podcast is to help bridge the civilian-military divide in this country. We've gone from the Vietnam era, where vets didn't get the treatment that they deserved when they came back, to now, since 9-11, veterans are occupying sort of hallowed ground in America. They are widely revered. There's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of job opportunities that open up to them uh, because of their veteran status. And a lot of that is attributable, I think, to the fact that the military is seen as a meritocracy, something that values excellence, uh, certainly something that values selfless service and sacrifice, and is nonpartisan. Uh, Maybe even most importantly, the fact that it's nonpartisan. We're used to the fact that politicians are going to use soldiers as props. They're going to use the DOD as a prop when they can. Uh, we're used to seeing presidents give speeches with service members standing behind them. So that let's take that as rote. That's always going to be the case. And when you're in the military, that goes with the territory. You're used to that. I don't think that we can argue about how exploitive that is or not, but that personally doesn't bother me a whole lot. But there have been several events that have happened, uh, certainly in the past couple months, that do seem to be pushing the boundaries on where the military stands in relation to our leadership and to the civilian population. And a lot of that is because of the military and official military members' own involvement. Let me be clear. So we had an active duty army officer involved in the riots, or as Jimmy Gagliano pointed out last week, the Capitol Hill insurrection on January 6th. We had following the Joe Biden inauguration, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered a 60-day stand-down for the services to look into the issue of extremism in the military. We had the chief of naval operations put uh, the book by Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist, on the official naval Navy reading list for the year. And of course, that provoked a response from Tucker Carlson, which in turn provoked a huge, a large amount of rebuke from various entities in DOD. You had the U.S. Space Command's senior uh, enlisted advisor uh, calling, uh, talking about how Carlson had never actually served in the military. He had spent 28 years in the military, and then he rebuked all of Carlson's comments. We uh, had the Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby, actually uh, say the Department of Defense would not be taking personnel advice from a talk show host. We had the commanding general of the U.S. Army Maneuver Center of Excellence at Fort Benning uh, come out and speak out against Tucker Carlson by name. So there was that whole incident. And then finally, for now, we had an incident where uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia apparently didn't know that Guam was part of the U.S. and she called it a foreign land. So Guam Representative Michael San Nicholas brought members of the Guam National Guard to her office. I think he brought like cupcakes or something as well. So it was a good kind of Twitter gotcha moment where he was bringing these service members with him to underscore the fact that Guam is very much a part of the U.S. And, um, you know, using these members very much as a as an in-your-face uh, photo op to kind of put her on blast. Now, without getting too in the weeds as to the 
correctness or, or lack of correctness of Tucker Carlson or Marjorie Taylor Greene. We can talk, obviously, what they say, you know, how right or how wrong they are and what positions they take does matter in the proportionality of the response that DOD would give to them. If Tucker Carlson was saying the U.S. military should lay down and, you know, China should occupy, I, I think that there's a, you know, that's a very disturbing statement. But he didn't. And we can talk about the nuances of what he, Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera, et cetera, all said. But to me, what the interesting thing is, is about the military itself starting to push back on U.S. citizens and their commentary about the military. So is the military becoming too involved in domestic politics? Steve, you're our token civilian. You have an opinion about the military. You know military members. Uh, what do you think? Is the, Am I making too much of this? Too little? Well, um, I, I, I think that we have to remember that, that the military should stay out of uh, domestic political issues. And, and, and I'm, I'm young enough or old enough, I should say, that I remember people still talking about how uh, Truman fired MacArthur for making comments about the way that the uh, war in Korea was conducted. And he was out of his lane and that wasn't his job. So, so when I see these statements happening now by people that are in positions where they're, where they're talking about, uh, you know, civilian criticism of, of, of their job, that's, that's something that they, they should really work to stay away from. I, I can, I, I'm tempted to agree with you on that. I, I think there's something to be said for correcting maybe a misstated position or kind of threading the needle in somebody's statement without necessarily calling them out by name. If DOD has to set the record straight, that's one thing. If they have to call somebody out or shame them or, you know, tweet back at them uh, some some gotcha phrase or or put them on blast, I think there's a difference in that. Dave Hartman, what do you think? I think like a lot of things is full of nuance for sure. Um, the, the short answer to the main question posed, I would say yes, you know, and partially it's because the way I learned in the military is that you should stay out of that as much as you can. Now, that being said, um, like Steve mentioned, there's certainly some room for technical qualification and correcting errors and, and pointing out facts and point of order and that sort of thing. But, um, I, I think some of those folks are out of their lane, you know, speaking up that much. And, and I think... You know, again, it's it's full of whys and, and nuance and stuff. But I, looking back after I've been out for a while now, I think it's lost on a lot of military people, junior, senior, everybody, just how intimidating they can be to the civilian populace. And intimidating probably isn't the right word, but, you know, you kind of saw it in, in the Guam National Guard visit, etc. You know, you have a civilian representative all of a sudden inundated by a dozen or more people in uniform and masks, which is one conversation on intimidation. But yeah, there's a lot of political capital that DOD has and um, because of its apolitical nature. So when that's leveraged in for one point of view that it is very forceful, that makes a lot of sense to me. Kevin, what do you think? I'm reminded of nothing so much as the very, very apolitical stance the Prussian military tradition carried on in the years leading up to World War II. They absolutely refused to get involved in any sort of politics and thus ended up essentially enabling horrific things to happen. I think it's absolutely essential that the military remains nonpartisan. 
but for them not to have a voice in political matters, especially when we live in a world where we're more connected than we've ever been. The military has a voice. They need to learn to use it responsibly. I don't think we're there yet, but I think we need to get there. What do you think then, Kevin, as far as left and right limits go of acceptable speech? Obviously, there's doctrine out on this. There's policies on this. Do you agree with that? Do you think that it should be something where, look, correct the record? Or if you have a point of view, say you have a point of view and say you're not representing DOD. And there's a difference between that and maybe calling somebody out by name and trying to own, quote unquote, uh, somebody on Twitter. Is there a difference between that or should it really be a little bit more freeform because we are in a different social media based age? Well, for starters, trying to correct a talking head is a bit like trying to play chess with a pigeon. At the end of the day, they're going to knock all over all the pieces, shit on the board, fly away and claim the victory. You're not going to win like that. But when you have talking heads that are directly attacking aspects of the service that we're trying to improve, you know, there is room for criticism there. There is room for rebuttal. And I don't necessarily think that in the particular Tucker Carlson case, it's uncalled for to fight back's the wrong word. I don't think it's necessarily uncalled for to open up discussion on the matter because this is something that's going to affect all of us moving forward. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that the best way to move forward in anything is to have open, honest debate. But to have open, honest debate, all sides need to be able to participate on equal footing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, I, I think you raise an excellent point, which is that, look, in a day and age where very few people have served in the military, it is important for the military and for veterans, but also, but especially for people that are actively serving and are in official positions or are just rank and file soldiers to be able to maybe lend their subject matter expertise to the degree they have some on a certain issue and say, Hey, look, in my experience, X, Y, and Z, this is what I see, or this is what I, I believe. But I do think then there are limits to that not necessarily calling somebody out by name, not trying to own them, not trying to, you know, necessarily uh, put them on blast, I think is a, there's a big difference between that and simply saying, without even reference to Tucker Carlson, this has been my experience in the military and let people do with that as they see fit. So there's kind of informed opinion about that. Steve, does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, I mean, you know, the people involved could even, uh, especially if you're in, in public affairs, you could say, hey, uh, how about having me on your show to allow me the opportunity to respond? And I, I think that that a, a responsible journalist would accept that, embrace it, and then it gives uh, a wider audience to uh, the, the, the speaker from the military side. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Dave. Do you have something? Just to expand on, you know, the talking heads and the, the congressional representatives and that sort of thing, I think a lot of the time they're just leveraging emotion, you know, in a classic PSYOP event just to get the clicks and the eyeballs, and like, like you said, clickbait. So countering that in an effective way from those of us down here in the peanut gallery, the regular folks, is, yeah, it, it's a lost cause a lot of times. But, you know, to train everybody to be emotionally mature enough to listen to that stuff and not get too spun up and not react. That's, that's a tall order. It is. I think there is something though, 
I mean, look, if, if you're the Sergeant Major of Space Force or Senior Enlisted Advisor of Space Force and you're putting out a, I can't remember if it was an Instagram video or a Twitter video or whatever to respond, that's that's a multi-step decision process to actually go through with that. Uh, you're in uniform, you, you're you tweeting under the official um, heading of Space Force. Um you know, there, there's a lot of moments to kind of check yourself there um, and go, is this really the right forum and the right venue and the right approach to be taking in my response there? What do you think, Kevin? Uh, generally speaking, if you would write up an E3 for doing the same thing, you probably ought not do it. But sergeants major have been known to uh, write their own rules. Totally. Yep, absolutely. And that, I think, leads to a second order effect that's worth talking about. Um, when we had, uh, when, uh, secretary of defense, Austin ordered the 60 day stand down for concerns about extremism in the force. And, uh, they singled out the national guard. They said the national guard, uh, you know, is overwhelmingly white is overwhelmingly male. Therefore they assessed that it was probably full of Trump voters, which means that therefore they would have a lot of a higher percentage uh, of in, of individuals that might have been sympathetic to the January sixth insurrection, um, which is, as you can tell, that's making several leaps in assumptions, and it does make you wonder uh, when there's. I don't want to say a witch hunt for extremism because everyone should be vigilant about extremism, but having a 60 day stand down to look for extremism and to have Kevin, like you pointed out, Sergeant majors, not necessarily held to the same standard as maybe an E3 would be held to. There starts to be a divide in the military. I think between the leadership and between the rank and file where grunts on the ground are looking up and going, Hey, are you guys really looking out for us? Or are you just kind of following what's trendy, whether it's a political thought, whether it's a political party, whether it's uh, something that's you know fueling a lot of debate in, in the states, and you're not actually looking out for what we're doing or really that interested in who we are? Kevin, as a National Guardsman, uh, I'll let you take the first crack at that. I mean, I've been out for a couple years now, but my first response when I read about this was, well, this guy can go surf a piece of plywood up a camel's ass. That's, like I said, there's a difference between remaining apolitical and nonpartisan. This is an absolutely partisan move, and it's going to severely affect many, many things, not the least of which being morale and trust in the civilian leadership. It's absolutely vital that the average Joe be able to trust that their leaders are looking out for them and... Like you said, it looks an awful lot like a witch hunt. Yeah. Dave, when you were in, how did you, what was your experience talking politics? Obviously like that 0304 timeline, especially in Afghanistan, um, Iraq was starting up. I'm sure there was political discussions happening um, downrange. What did you see? How did you see politics getting handled then? It really was hands off and maybe it was just my particular recipe of leadership and guidance that I had going in there, but we, it was a no, no. I mean, you definitely kept your thumb on what was going on in your own unit and your own teams and your own sphere of influence, but there's no writing congressman and all, and social media wasn't even really a thing. So that's a whole other angle on this that I'm largely ignorant of 
compared to my time in service. But yeah, I was treated as an Ono. I mean, I look back and again, I got out as a 03, but it was refreshing to become a civilian and be able to write letters to my congressman and, you know, be on local councils and boards and that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe I read too much into it, but that was my take on politics within the ranks at the time. Steve, what do you think? Well, as we're talking, I'm I'm remembering that um, th- this isn't really a new thing. Remember that in World War II, uh, George Patton got in a world of hurt because he slapped a soldier. And if memory serves me correctly, his his mom took exception to that and wrote a letter uh, either to her congressman or, or Truman. I can't remember. No, um, Roosevelt. I can't remember who, but but um, uh, that was that was an incident that 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 pretty much cost somebody their job um, because somebody went to a, a, a politician and say, hey, this was a bad thing to do. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, those are things that, um, look, there's there's always got to be an IG. There's always got to be people that have to investigate wrongdoing and make sure that uh, everyone, the due diligence is being done. But there's no two ways about it. Um, social media, I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of trite to say, but I think social media is a worthwhile villain here. Um, the ease and accessibility to be able to voice your opinions and to say something that maybe isn't the optimal way or optimal venue of putting something is just that much more uh, easy to find. Uh, I want to throw out one thing, and Kevin, I want to bounce this off you. In my time in the military, uh, I noticed two different kinds of political speech. So one was in the field setting. And in the field setting, for one thing, it was usually a different kind of individual. Uh, might be younger. There'd be late night bull sessions or you know, comments sometimes like you know, somebody would get into something while we're spotting somebody for weights or something like that. Like there, there, there was one kind of attitude there. I never saw a boil over into anything. I never saw anybody get truly butthurt over it. Um, and I think a large part of that is because it was the field. And you have a job to do, and you're not really you, you can't use all your bandwidth up getting into deep, you know, Sam Will, uh, Sam Donaldson, George Wilk kind of level of discussion. Then there was the office, the staff level discussions about politics, and those almost uniformly I never saw occur at all until people had kind of sussed out where everybody was politically, and if everybody sort of agreed generally on the same, had generally the same political viewpoint, political discussions would happen. But I'd always noticed that if a stranger walked into the room, immediately all the conversations would stop because they go, Hey, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to just, you know, talk extemporaneously about something that might, you know, be uncomfortable for this person. So it was really something you just kind of did with known quantities and you wouldn't just uh, you know, kind of spray fire uh, your your political dialogue about that. Does that kind of line up with what you saw? Absolutely. Like like you said, when we're when we were out by ourselves, there was no one around to get offended. You know, we'd have some pretty hardcore political debates just because there's you know jack all else to do when you're sitting out on the firing line waiting for something to happen. But you know, we are always kept it in-house you never wanted outsiders to come in and hear what everybody was talking about like even if lt's walking around everybody shuts the hell up because you know in this day and age 
I, I distinctly remember after Obama got reelected the second time, we were at Camp Atterbury mobbing up to go to Egypt. And they had us all in formation one morning and said, look, we get people are upset about this, but shut up. Don't go talking about this on social media. Don't go talking about this where anyone else can hear. We can't do that. And even as I started writing with first with uh, Unapologetically American and also then Havoc Journal, I was warned many times, you know, not because I was break crossing any boundaries, but because they were worried it might happen. There are limits to what you can and can't say where other people can hear you. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's, um, it's interesting to think about, uh, I, you know, I was, I was trying to look at the opposite point of view and I thought, okay, well, look, did I miss something? Is extremism, look, if extremism is running rampant through the ranks, um, that goes above and beyond standard political dialogue, obviously. And that is something that could be a concern. Um, and I think a lot of people are pundits, even uh, what I call military Twitter, uh, active people that have Twitter accounts and usually are using a pseudonym, but are open about the fact that they are in actively serving in the military. There, there seem to be a lot of anonymously sourced uh, references to, hey, well, you don't know how much extremism is here. And maybe I don't. In my experience, I never saw any extremism. I had a pretty wide range of units that I worked with. Um, I, until I worked in special operations, I think almost all my units were either predominantly Hispanic or black. Um, I, I don't know if that had something to do with it, uh, but I never really saw any signs of extremism or something that would warrant necessarily a 60 day stand down to look for signs of extremism. I think the most I ever saw was in a major base downrange uh, in a porta potty next to some offices amongst the penises and limericks and everything else on the porta potty wall, there was a swastika, um, which to me looked like trolling, but you know, as I say, it's buried in there with a bunch of other profane stuff that you see on the inside of a downrange porta potty. Um, Dave Hartman, did you ever run into anything like that? Anything ever cross your path that you're like, yeah, that was a sign. That was an indicator that probably something was going on. No, I didn't. And again, you know, you have one data point in my experience. Um, but the units that I was in were a mixed bag of all shapes and sizes and colors and male, female being in the engineer branch. Um, we all got along, you know, it was all, a function of how hard you could work. I'm I'm not so ignorant to think that it was never there and never a problem. And some feel might, some folks might have felt that, but I, I I didn't really see its presence so much that it's causing a, a problem. Um, you know, going back to the situation that you described about sort of two group small group political discussion, I think that can you know that absolutely plays out in the civilian world too. I see the exact same thing you know, in offices all around the country where people, you know, know the people they work with and have a comfort level with certain topics they can talk about. And when a, someone new comes in, it takes a little while to, to recon their stance on everything. Mm. I think that's a sign for the professionalism of the organization too. I, I noticed that when I've held civilian jobs, I've had People that have come in and, uh, you know, whether they're a boss, whether they're a coworker, sight unseen, 
and have come in and immediately, oh, Bush's war, what up, blah, 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 or Obama this, or you know, whatever their position was, but they didn't hold back and they were acutely aware that one, there was virtually no repercussions for what they were saying. Um, and nor should there have been necessarily, but just they felt free to mouth off because what's the difference? Who, who cares? And sometimes they felt that all of us, whoever else was in the room should agree with them. Um, but also just culturally in the institution and whatever the job was, you know, that, that wasn't really, you know, it, it wasn't damaging anyone's brand. There was nobody that really was going to mind it. And I, I see, say that in distinction to the military where I was always really aware that, man, those, those there was a hard boundary that the military did put up in people's minds where automatically, Kevin, like you said, when, a, when an LT walks by, man, people shut up. They just are like, hey, I got it. This guy was commissioned by the president. Let's just shut up about this. Like we don't necessarily. This isn't something that we're going to just uh, mouth off about uh, as we as we see fit. Steve, on the civilian side, do you see similar parallels to that? Do you see kind of where civilians kind of kind of are a lot more freewheeling in their political debate than what we're talking about? Um, I think I, I, I think it's changed a lot in the last few years. I think that that um, there are people who have become more concerned about the possible repercussions of their political views, and in certain environments, um, they they might get in trouble for what they believe or what they say, so they say nothing. Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and that this is, I think, a, a new phenomenon. I mean, I I hope this doesn't become a benchmark. For uh, you know, this being the year that DOD started to become more and more politicized, but there is it does seem like we're starting to we're several years into the social media revolution, um, and it's starting to maybe take hold in a way that we may regret. Kevin, any last thoughts on this? Anything we've missed? Anything uh, we need to address? Um, nothing really comes to mind. I mean. I guess going back to the extremism thing a little bit, it really depends on how you define extremism. It used to be that, you know, extremism was drawing swastikas on porta potties. Now, in some minds, being an extremist is voting for the wrong politician, following the wrong people on Twitter. It's a it's a very dangerous, slippery slope we're kind of heading towards. There's no two ways about it. Um my last unit, uh, I, I remember we were on a very high deployment tempo and we came back just to drop off gear, pick up more gear, and then we were heading back out the door. And I noticed that we had um, uh, LGBT uh, flags uh, kind of all on the inside of the stalls in our restroom. And our at that time, our unit was housed in the base chapel. And uh, there was something to a lot of dudes I was with where it was like, hey, man, this is our chapel. And the uh, don't ask, don't tell had recently been repealed. Um, and they were like, we get it. But this is really kind of in your face stuff that's going on to celebrate. I think it was the month. I think that's what the the, the flags were in there for. And it it felt like social engineering when we kind of were 
very mission focused and kind of resented the fact that every time we come back to the States, it's to get not just vaccinated, but to also get your indoctrination shots. Steve, what do you think? I hear you coming on. Yeah, I I just wanted to add that um, people have been screaming that what happened on January 6th was was an insurrection. And the leader of the insurrection was a was a dude with a painted face and a plastic Viking helmet and nothing else. <laughs> Tough to argue with. Dave Hardman, what are we missing? <laughs> well, I uh, there's all kinds of topics interwoven through all of this for sure. Um, I, I think going back to what we started talking about, you know, official positions by senior people, you know, making their political point, I, I think that's outside their lane. On the other hand, I like to think that most every adult American should be grown up enough to be able to have these verbal conversations internally, one-on-one, to parse this stuff out. You know, that's the cry and shame with all this stuff where so many people feel muzzled, you know, whatever side you're on. Um, That you can't have those grown-up conversations. Yeah, I'm a a student of of, uh, John Boyd's because of the leadership work that he did. And one of his uh, signature quotations is, all closed systems collapse. And if we don't have an open system of political dialogue in our country, it's going to make us a closed system and then we're in trouble. That's right. And I think the Overton window on what I think everyone, all reasonable people can agree would be an extremist point of view has shifted. And that I think is alarming if it's going to be all Trump voters, um, which for the record, I was not, but uh, to those that were, if that's, if that's going to be a, a potential indication of extremism, um, that's, that's troubling. That, that makes the Overton window a lot more partisan than it has been. It shifts it a lot more in one direction than I think most of us are comfortable with. Um, I want to pause or unless anybody's got any final shots on this, I do want to move on to the articles. So any final words from anybody? Seeing none, we'll drive on. So I want to dive into the articles um, and as a change of gear and also uh, because this is, uh, you know, what people come to Havoc Journal for is uh, what we have to say. And the first piece that I want to dive into is Steve's piece. And it's because it it harkens back to military reading that I did as a kid, stuff that got me into the military. Um, It's a great story. It's called War Comes Full Circle, How a Crime-Fighting Cop Revolutionized Urban Warfare. And it's a story about Don Young, who had a 20-year career as an NYPD cop, and then moves on into military contracting and ended up greatly affecting a a striker regiment's TTPs, their their techniques, tactics, and procedures, and um, especially when it came to site exploitation and evidence collection. And it's just a great story. I think it has the adventure, a a real uh, glorification of accomplishment, and a glorification of purpose. And I think those are noble things to glorify. Steve, talk us through the story um, and what drew you to write about Don Young. Well, um, I started off... uh, with my interest in veterans affairs, getting involved with the uh, Walk of Life, which was uh, an effort by the members of the 124th um, Infantry 
to walk across the country to raise awareness for mental health issues for um, military members because the, the 124th, which became reflagged as, as a 3-2 SCR, um, had two hot deployments to Iraq. They lost a lot of people while they were there. And yet in the time since their return, uh, they've had more suicides than killed in action. So, uh, so that they've really, um, they've really suffered greatly um, psychologically since their return. And I got involved with the, with the guys and one thing led to another. I got to be friends with all of them. And then um, uh, their, their unit commander, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rod Coffey um, died of a heart attack at age 57, and um, his uh, funeral was in March of 2019. And I went to that funeral and met all of my friends that I had previously known there. And I m- met this uh, th- this man, Don Young. And when the ceremony was over, uh, and the the guys were taking group pictures. Everyone made an effort to make sure that Don was included in the in in the picture. So one thing led to another, and I was talking back and forth with Don. And then I realized uh, as I started to get involved in in my book project about uh, the one twenty fourth, and then the three two SCR, and their two deployments, and all the events in between. That that Don was a critical part of the story, uh, not only because because of, of who he is as, as, a, as a man, but then also because he brought a, a unique um, perspective to the operations and, and, and the work that he did uh, in all the research that I did, I couldn't find evidence that anybody else uh, did what he did in Iraq. And, and what Don did was he introduced uh, municipal police crime fighting methods to the operations of the 3-2 SCR. And, and it, it, it's reached a point where it reached a point where, where a lot of the operations that the, that the, that the striker regiment was doing was almost as much about um, uh, taking apart uh, gangs and, and, and groups of, of uh, networks of men that were very similar to the work that that Don had done in New York City. So uh, uh, a week after Don arrived uh, on scene and was attached to the unit as a a member of the law enforcement professional uh, program, uh, there was an incident where uh, a building had had been set up as a giant trap and a squad of the of the unit went into the building to look for uh, terrorists, and the entire building was wired to explode, and the whole thing came down. And seven uh, soldiers, six Americans, and then one um, Iraqi interpreter were killed. A whole bunch of other guys were wounded uh, badly, and uh, and it was a, a, a huge loss of life. And in the in the in the days after that incident, uh, individual members of the unit went back to the site to look for personal effects and and um, uh, you know other other things that, that that they could that they could pull out of the building. And Don realized 
that if he went in and, and looked at the building in terms of what a police officer would do, he might be able to determine uh, through f- collecting forensic evidence uh, who the bomber was. And so he went to uh, Colonel Coffey and, and pleaded his case and said, look, if, if, if you can, if you can uh, give me the resources, I can go back to this building and find out who, uh, who did it and also collect uh, uh, some of the personal effects of the men. And the executive officer, you know, took took the opposite viewpoint, saying, "Hey, we're on a high mission tempo. We can't afford the resources right now. Um, this is going to take up. A, this is going to soak up a lot of a lot of resources, and and we can't we can't do this." And so Rod Coffey um, realized what Don could do, and said, "Okay, Donnie, how much time do you need?" And and Don Young said, "If you can give me three days, I can." I can get this done. And then Colonel Coffey said, well, I'll give you a day. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so Don, uh, game planned it. He, uh, he had two, uh, other police officers, civilian police officers that were, that were working with him. And they, they got a bunch of backhoes and sawzalls to go through the, the concrete and the rebar. Um, the unit went back on a day in, in, in February 2008, cordoned off the area, and then um, 30 unit members, two civilian police officers under the, under the direction of Don Young, um, went, went through the building, and one of the civilian police officers uh, found the trigger for the IED. And it was taped up, and it had a, a, a clean fingerprint on it. And they, they got it and sent it back to the um, to the database to, to to get examined, and then everybody in the unit realized that, that that Don could add a lot to what they were doing, especially after he was able to to, to find the um, uh, the fingerprint. So then he began to, to they began to utilize him to to teach all the other guys the the, the methods of uh, evidence collection. And so, and so men who were previously just soldiers now knew exactly what to look for when they went into a raid site. So then they went in and, and, uh, uh, they were able to collect at one location. They got, they got a, a whole drawer full of refrigerator motors that was being used to uh, build IEDs. And then they got, and they got all the burner phones and, and, and then, uh, and Don said, Hey, look, you know, this is how you. This is how you got to search through a um, search through a room from a police perspective, and so then they began to get things like like pocket trash with numbers on them, um, you know, little pieces of information, uh, SIM cards, uh, compute, you know, computer hard drives, things that would that would help to to to, to get the higher ups in the in the uh, in the terrorist networks, and so then the, the three two began to have a lot of success. To the point where um, they're even able to, to to find evidence of a terrorist at one location, go into another location, get the terrorist, and and not even have to fire a shot. So, uh, so yeah. Don was very effective in in uh, in, in helping the the three two to do its work. It, it's a great story, and I'm going to ask Dave. Dave, during your time. Did you guys, were you guys doing SSE? Were you doing sensitive site exploitation 0304 in Afghanistan? No, Had that spread that. there then? N- not formally anyway. Um, the 
certainly not to that extent. And uh, the stories that I hear about, you know, in the more recent history where they've certainly picked up on a lot of these procedures. Um, but in reading that article, I did kind of go back to when I was running around with civil affairs teams in Kandahar province. And looking back, there was some correlation to being beat cops. You know, we were much more effective at, at our job, you know, setting up civil affairs type missions. When we stuck to everybody had their own group of villages that they got to know, we ran around with AMF, you know, Afghan militia force that were generally Afghans from that area. So they were, you know, part hired guns, part interpreters, part, you know, guides for that particular area. But yeah, there was some real correlations to having local law enforcement patrol certain areas and get to know people and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, carrying that forward to the after action, you know, data collection, we, we weren't that robust at all. Got you. Yeah, no, definitely. There's something to be said for owning the street um, that that police principle, I think is huge when it, when it comes to that kind of, to the work in both Iraq and Afghanistan, any other reactions, Dave, to, uh, to Steve's piece when you read it? Just how gripping it was. You know, it, I can't, like I said, I can't wait for the next episode, but it's <laughs> cool to see where a lot of those procedures um, came from. And then to, I'm, I'm a big fan of grabbing techniques and, and ideas that are completely off the wall from one mission and applying them to another mission. And it sounds like that's exactly what they did there. Techniques travel. Kevin, what'd you think? I think it's honestly fascinating. I, Obviously, we were artillery. We weren't kicking down doors. We were blowing them up. Um, but just as a student of military history, reading about where stuff like this came from and reading about how it's implemented later on down the line, it's absolutely amazing stuff, and I'm looking forward to the next piece. I, I couldn't agree more. As I said, like it just harkened back to when I first – when I was a, a, in high school and I'd read you know stories from Vietnam and just well-researched uh, intricate details of military units, military operations, uh, developing TTPs. Um, I, it, I think it's a great story, Steve, a great piece. And, um, I was, I was really, yeah, can't wait for the next installation. Dave, I want to transition to your piece, military veterans and fresh air poisoning. <laughs> what is fresh air poisoning? It's, uh, it's something we all need in my opinion. Um, in the article, kind of plays out a lot of my mindset, I guess, but you know, I've, I've always been a huge fan of the outdoors. I've, I'm a lot happier outside than I am in for the most part. And, um, you know, I was an outdoorsman as a kid and growing up. And then after I got deployed, I found it really helpful, you know, just to go back to kind of, you know, do some of the resets and get back in the saddle, so to speak. You know, all the various outdoors pursuits, camping, hunting, fishing, all that sort of thing. It's just, for me, and I think a lot of people, more peaceful being out and away from a lot of that stuff. Um, but I've seen other veterans that have returned, you know, that that's a new phenomenon too. And man, it's fantastic. And you know, call it therapy, call it growth, call it just fun, call it whatever you want. I, I truly wish more people would do it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's right. That's right. There's there's something that's always bothered me with um with guys that I've worked with where they'll talk while we're downrange, they'll have ideas, they'll have, you know, um passions, what have you. And when they're getting close to their twenty and getting ready to retire, 
I'm like, oh, what are you going to do, man? Because you know so much. You've been so many places. You've seen so many things. And a lot of them are like, uh, I just want to go live in a cabin. Just be left the hell alone. Just leave me alone, man. I'm done. Yeah. There's then, a cynicism and all that. And this seems to address some of that. Like, hey, man, this is a good way of, of clearing your brain a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, it's a little extreme. You know, it might be the right answer for some folks. Um, but just to, you know, kind of put things in perspective, you know, I think there's a D.H. Lawrence quote in my story where, you know, I never saw a wild thing feel sorry for itself. You know, it is so easy to just wrap yourself around the axle with all these stories and all this stuff. And and I get it's good to share stories. I mean, hell, I've written a ton too. But just to get away and go see, you know, the other side of the coin, go see what life is like, you know, out in, you know, away from the cities and all the straight lines of our, our modern life. It's, you know, kind of what we evolved to live in. You know, we were never meant to live in <laughs> houses and urban settings. And I'm a civil engineer, so I make a living, you know, building urban settings for sure. But um, it, there's something that goes on in your brain, you know, call it, you know, more in touch with your lizard brain or whatever. Or your and primal it, brain. Yeah. Yeah. Just, your primal yeah. brain. Yeah. And for me personally, you know, planning a lot of these hunts, you know, hunting isn't for everybody. I, I totally get that. But if you have a hobby that's very cyclical, you know, there's a certain series of events that happen every year. Hunting, it's, you know, the actual hunt generally in the fall, you know, in the wintertime, you sort of recover, you know, clean up your meat, that, that sort of thing. Um, in the spring, like now, you're researching, hey, where do I want to go this year? And, you know, me now at 49, mapping out, there's some hunts that I may not get to do, you know, but well, I'm still upright. So you're thinking, okay, I've got X number of years left where I can go sheep hunting, elk hunting, you know, go on these big trips and you start strategizing that stuff out. So you, you know, apply for your tags, your plan out, your fall, your train over the summer, you know, your scouting over the summer and then you go hunt again. Um, I, I get the same vibe from farmers, you know, from ag workers, from people that work in the outdoors, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Just, I don't know. There's something in our caveman brain that needs to be in touch with the change of the seasons, the flow of the year, all that stuff. And then to be connected with, you know, with different outdoorsmen and women where, you know, you, that is your daily bread, where you're doing that stuff. You're training in the outdoors. You're going on, you know, certainly fun, occasionally extreme and once in a while dangerous outdoor adventures, you know, things are very real and kind of going back to the first part of our discussion, you may not agree, agree with how your hunting buddy voted, but you guys still got to get along. You know, yeah. you still got to, yeah. you know, strap the saddle in the packs on the horse on right, or somebody could get injured or worse. Yeah. You know, that sort of things are very real when all of a sudden you have a giant dead elk that you got to quarter up and spend the next two days packing from five miles back into the wilderness. Yeah. I like that. I think yeah. a lot of other people would too. <laughs> no, I, I think so. I, I wanted to pick up on one line that you had in there that made me stop and think for a second about if, how true this was for me. And I want to ask it back to you. Your line was, you said, each of us misses that person who we were before war. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, do you feel that way? Would you have done it all over again? Yes to both. You know, I, I think my war experience is, certainly changed how I think about some things, but you know, it's kind of folly to wish it never happened. You know, it's just, it is the way it is. Um, but for me, since I was big in the outdoors before and, you know, continued to do that after 
my war experience. That, I don't know what synapses were firing and, and what you want to call it, but be able to tie that back to my previous self when I know that I had changed into, you know, thinking differently, acting differently, you know, certainly have different experiences and colored who I am now. Still to say, hey, you know, old, old Dave's still there. Um, and this is the way to stay in touch with him. Yeah. Yeah. There was something you, you sent me separately, um, when we were going over your introduction and you said, uh, there's no military, there was almost no military presence near your home when you came back as a redeployed reservist in 2004. So it felt like the twilight zone. It felt like you just got kicked right back onto main street. And I have to believe that probably fed into some of your motivation for, getting right back to hunting to get some degree of familiarity. And I want to ask Kevin, did you have the same feeling as a guardsman that you come back and suddenly there's no base necessarily that you're surrounded by? There's no military community automatically, uh, you know, right in your, in your purview. So does it feel alien? Did you get that sense? Absolutely. Like I came back and was just this big ball of, hate and discontent and frustration the very first thing i did was book it up to upstate new york and just bum around the adirondacks for a couple of weeks because i absolutely needed to have that chance to reconnect with old me and decompress i think in a way it helped coming back to not be surrounded by that culture because i mean we can all say what we want about the military but after a certain point, it becomes toxic, and you need that chance to to use the hippie phrase "detox." Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, one of the greatest gifts my wife gave me when I came back um, on my last deployment was she said, "You know, some this was a rough deployment. If you need to just take a couple weeks before you come home, just so you make sure you're showing up in the right headspace." just go ahead and do that. And there, there's absolutely that sense of being able to equalize and normalize and uh, be able to approach civilian, the civilian world with a bit more amenable mindset mindset is, is I think crucial. Kevin, what were your other uh, thoughts about uh, Dave's piece? I mean, for starters, I want to go on one of these hunts, <laughs> but uh, yeah, time, like right? spot on. <laughs> Every, I think everyone who spends any time, real time in a war zone needs to have that chance to reconnect with the inner caveman, so to speak. Because war is not a natural state of affair for the human mind. It does things to us that we are not meant to experience. And having that chance to reconnect to a nor- more natural state of humanity, like you killed it, man. You got it spot on. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I I think I've talked about this with people usually down range over the years when there was a lull or something and we just had time to talk, but uh, that's that sense of the difference between repression and discipline and the military in a positive respect gives you a lot of discipline, but that same token is also repression and there are going to be things that are going to be repressed and repression isn't necessarily bad. It does give you that discipline, but man, do you have some things to kind of just, you have some kinks to straighten out when you get back just to make sure that, that, you know, you're functional and uh, able to put one foot in front of the other. Steve, what were your takeaways? Well, I I thought it was, uh, I thought it was an outstanding article 
and it, it, it reminds me of my own uh, past where I've, I've done a lot of um, I've done a lot of fishing, and and I always feel you know connected to the larger world when I when I go fishing, and then and then the other reaction that I had is that um, uh, one of the guys that I support, John Jackson, is a combat veteran who grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, had never set foot on a farm in his life. And now he's operating a very successful small farm because that's his therapy from uh, what he's gone through is, is in uh, in combat. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's I don't think he's unique in that at all. I mean, as Dave points out, it's it's a great form of therapy. It was a great piece, Dave. Thanks for sharing it. And Kevin, I want to go to your piece, uh, which is a great think piece. It was called "The Cost of Civility." We need to talk. Kevin, talk us through where did, where did this come from? What what happened? You you talk about it in the article that it, there was an immigration debate going on. I was actually downrange when it happened. I, I don't I'm not tracking what the immigration issue was um, when you wrote this article, but just talk about where this came from. Um, it came from the bottle of a the bottom of a bottle of wild turkey. <laughs> I, I take Havoc Journal's uh, motto of write drunk, edit sober, very seriously. Um, I don't remember the specifics of the debate at the time. Um, it was somewhere during the Trump administration, so pick one. They all apply. But the thing that struck me and still sticks out is that we can't have a civil conversation anymore. The main reason for that is there's no looking at the other side of it as a human being. If someone disagrees with you, they're not misguided. They are obviously stupid or evil or whatever. That is, in my opinion, one of the single greatest problems that is affecting us as a country. We need to be able to talk. We need to be able to look at the other guy and say, okay, I disagree with you, but I'm willing to grant that you're at least as smart as I am and that you are at least as motivated to find the best outcome for America. We can disagree on the details, but we still need to have that talk. And if we can't do that, then what's the fucking point? Yep. I couldn't agree more. I there. I wanted to throw one other step out there that I think – your piece leaves off at, and I want to see what you think about it. I, I would put this almost squarely at the feet of tribalism and identity politics, because as I see it, once you start to see yourself as a race, a religion, a tribe of some sort, you start to place the loyalty to that tribe above anyone's ability to persuade or your ability to persuade them. And that's, I think, the toxicity of looking to your identity and wedding yourself to an identity that just cannot be changed. Because if we can't persuade each other of something, all that's left ultimately is violence because I can't talk you out of your race. I can't talk you out of your gender. And at that point, discussion becomes moot. Am I missing something? Am I taking your words too far? Or do you see that as a natural evolution? Oh, no, that's something I've addressed in other pieces, but um, I can only do so much after, you know, <laughs> half a bottle. Oh, you gotcha. Wild Turkey will do that to you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, I don't necessarily think that it's wrong to find an identity in one's, I mean, culture. Race sure. is a non-starter, but identity gives people purpose. It gives them direction. The problem is when they start looking at other tribes, so to speak, as the enemy. And that was my real point with this. Like tribalism is inevitable. It was a crucial part in human development as societal creatures it affects everything from national politics to who your favorite sports team is. 
you sit a Patriots and a Cowboys fan down in a bar and they're going to come to blows, the Cowboys guy's probably going to lose because that's just what they do. But it's ingrained into the human consciousness. We need to figure out a way to harness that positively. Dave, how did that strike you? I, I loved it. I remember having a conversation years ago with, I can't even remember who, somebody infinitely smarter than me, but as the internet was still taken off and social media and that sort of thing, the gist of our conversation was this is great for so many levels of communication, but it also allows crazy people to just hang out with people that are just as crazy as they are. And, you know, I'm not talking about mental health issues. I'm talking about this, you know, tribalism, this, you know, unwillingness to entertain ideas outside of, you know, their own train of thought, which really, I think kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You have to be adult enough to have conversations with people that don't believe what you believe or have other ideas. That's, that's not a bad thing. You know, you still might come away from it with your, you know, original set of beliefs, but at least you're a little smarter on where the other side's coming from. And honestly, I'm a way better writer than I am a speaker. As you guys all know by the end of this, but I, certainly I know the feeling. I know. Talking in first draft. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Talking through something allows someone to hear just how silly it might sound. You know, it might sound great at the keyboard. We call them keyboard cowboys at work. Boy, people just bang out, you know, vicious emails and, you know, you see it online in the comments and that sort of thing. Stuff, people write things that they would never usher, utter out of their mouth. It, it's, it's crazy. So yeah. I, I, I enjoyed the article. I think it's spot on. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree. I mean, Steve, do you see this as well? Do you see kind of the the fact that we're not we're not headed towards persuasion as much? We're we're really headed towards we're just looking for the fight. We're looking for the war. Yeah, um, as as we're talking, I was reminded of the the nineteen ninety film uh, Cadillac Man with uh, Robin Williams. And um, it was Tim Robbins, and and Tim and Tim Robbins takes over the office. He takes the, the entire office that uh, Robin Williams works at, which is a you know a, a Cadillac dealership, and and holds it hostage, uh, you know, with a with a with a weapon, and and Robin Williams is able to talk down Tim Robbins by finding common ground with him. And, and using his sales skills to, to create a common bond, a common ground between the two of them. And, and in, in any discussion between two sides that disagree with each other, the way to get through to the other side is to find common ground. Well, we've lost that now. And people aren't, they're not talking to each other. They're talking at each other. and uh, Or banning each other. Yeah. And it's... Um, you know, it, 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 it it's um, as the article points out, it, it can lead to some really or, or potentially this can lead to some really severe consequences. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great piece. It's obviously a very needed piece. Um, and Kevin, I, this is stuff that you're right. You've written about these kind of issues a lot. They're great think pieces. Uh and I highly encourage everyone to check out your stuff at Havoc Journal because it's a lot of good. Uh, it's a lot of good brain think, a lot of good stuff for people to dive into and dig into. 
Kevin, while we're on, uh, while we're talking to you, I want to pivot and talk about right to bear. Talk us through that. What are you trying to do there? So this originally started out as uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Trey Moyer. I live in North Carolina. He does too. The firearms community here, shall we say, has a certain uh, reputation. Most people associate it with being a bunch of rednecks going out in the back 40 and getting drunk off Bud Light some fucking hell. And, and, you know, shooting rifles and shotguns at anything that moves. There's, There's truth to that, but there's also, you know, there are a lot of people out there who would absolutely love to own a gun, but they're afraid to approach that side of things. So... Trey decided to sit down and get his concealed carry instructor certification. He's gathered a few of us up who are like-minded and, uh, you know, that's what we do. We go out on the weekends. He teaches a class. We have a little spot up in Rockingham County where we go out to shoot. Um, and you know, every time I've been out there, it's not been, you know, your typical good old boys. It's been single mothers. It's been, you know, young men and women who live in more urban areas who just would never have thought to go out and get a gun because they don't think they can. And what a lot of people don't realize is the second amendments for everyone, like gun rights are human rights. And the single best way to ensure that you and your family are safe is to have a piece to know how to use it responsibly and safely. That's a thing we're huge on. And be willing to sit down and say, okay, my life and my family's lives are more important than anyone that would wish to do us harm. That's the message we're trying to push. The company motto is stay dangerous because that's how you ensure that everyone you love is safe. You be the most dangerous thing out there. I think it's great. You're reaching out to the inner city and, and I, I, as somebody that's been a city dweller, most of my life, um, gun culture is so foreign and I'm often reminded, I think I've even written about this, that most martial arts came from places where there was gun control. So you had no other weapons. So it was great for the martial arts. It wasn't so great for the crime rate and wasn't so great for people's sense of safety and their own well-being. And I think, uh, that is definitely an underserved community with that. And that sounds like really good work to reach out to them. Yeah, uh, funny you should mention the martial arts thing. We actually have we have some folks that are trying to incorporate that with the firearms training in ways that I've never seen before. Oh, that's cool. Because yeah, they've never no one ever told them that. Oh, you're not supposed to mix kung fu and guns. Like, <laughs> yeah. Fucking why? Like it's a great idea and it looks cool as hell. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. That's uh, yeah, I, I dig it. Uh, Dave, talk us through backcountry hunters and anglers. Sure. Happy to. Um, it's not my organization. I'm just a member and certainly a big fan, but, um, it's, it's a nonprofit that is for the most part made up of hunters and anglers that enjoy the backcountry. And it's more of a Western phenomenon than the Eastern part of the U S but there's a ton of public land out here and how that gets managed is often a very big political football, you know, with the two extremes being, you know, ultra environmental, make everything wilderness versus put a gas well everywhere. And, you know, like with all things, the truth is somewhere in between. Um, but what BHA does is basically advocates for 
public land, you know, educating the public on what they have, you know, this huge resource that most nations on the planet don't have in the first place. Um, and then they weigh in somewhat on, on some bill in political advocacy with public land, that sort of thing, where, you know, it's a big organization, so you have lots of different mindsets and we argue amongst each other, but at the end of the day, you know, we all still grab a beer and have a wild game potluck every couple months and it's awesome. Um, and lately, last year, they started an armed forces initiative um, where they have outreach on some active duty bases and that sort of thing, but also to the veterans to, you know, both get the word out that this organization is out there, you know, to participate in while you're on active duty, or we're here to receive you, you know, when you get out too, to kind of play into that mindset that I talked about in my article. You know, there is a wealth of opportunities out there, but you just have to, you know, take the first step, go ask around, you know, where can I go learn how to hunt? Where can I go learn to participate? What public land is out there? And and BHA does all of that stuff. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a really interesting organization. Steve, talk us through Comfort Walk. How did you get involved with it? Well, it it was, um, the the inspiration for the Comfort Walk actually uh, came from, uh, 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 Josh Collins, who um, did a, a paddleboard voyage all the way up the east coast of the United States. He went from uh, all the way down in Florida uh, to New York Harbor on a, on a paddleboard, and he was supported by his wife and, and a few other people. And, I, and I, at, at that point, um, I had just learned about the, um, uh, the number of veterans who were committing suicide every day. And it, it motivated me to, to, to say, hey, you know, maybe I can do kind of a, a, a long voyage that uh, that will help to bring awareness for uh, veterans mental health issues. And so I kind of figured out how to, to work my way across uh, two states from um, uh, Manchester, Connecticut at the Army Navy Club to um, uh, McBride's Pub in Providence, Rhode Island. And the people that own McBride's are, are very patriotic and um uh, they've, they've done a lot of things for veterans, so it was a, it was a good place to, 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 to end up. And then um, I was looking for uh, somebody to, to help raise funds for and was feeling kind of frustrated about it because uh, some places wanted you to invest money to buy their gear before, you know, before, in, you, know, before you could even um, get involved with them. And, and, and right. so then um, I had a conversation with uh, – uh, Mama Sue Penny, who's the gold star mom of Doc Penny. And she said, hey, Steve, you ought to talk to John Jackson. I think you guys would really hit it off. So I called up John and uh, I knew within five minutes that this is the guy I really wanted to to work for and, and, and to help out. Um, you could just feel, even through the phone, you just feel his energy, his enthusiasm. And we ended up talking for a couple hours on the phone. And I said, this, this is the guy that I want to work for. And, um, and so, uh, uh, you know, John had started out his farm and it was a pretty small operation and anybody that's been down there knows that it's, it's now growing by leaps and bounds. Um, and, and John, uh, was just able to, uh, he just got, um, permission to run, uh, uh, agriculture as a course through one of the local colleges and, the. Uh, the, the people participating, the veterans are going to get are going to get college credit for doing that. So um, so he's he's come a long way in a short time, 
And, and then the other thing about it is that, that it's also a model that we're hoping to reproduce in other parts of the country, too, um, that, that uh, the model for a small farm and, and, and how to be successful in, in, the, in the farm-to-table industry, and then also in the way that it assists the veterans who come to work on the farm and through, it's called uh, cognitive agrotherapy, by being able to work outside and work on the farm, um, they're able to, to help uh, psychologically heal, um, as we were talking about before in, in Dave's article with uh, getting outside. So I do the walk every uh, 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 Memorial Day weekend. Um, gives me, you know, I get three days when I'm off from work. Uh, last year, I had to, I had to kind of uh, uh, wing it a little bit because of, the, uh, of the, all the lockdowns. Every place was closed. So I ended up now. Normally, what I've done in the past is I've split the walk up into into three stages, and realizing that most uh, places were going to be closed in in eastern Connecticut, um, I decided to to walk the first two stages in one day. So uh, last May twenty second, um, uh, I walked forty one point three miles in a day um, from uh, the Army Navy Club in Manchester, Connecticut. Um, to the Dayville section of Killingly, and uh, I had I had people that walked with me part of the way, but I did the whole thing, uh, walking time at about twelve hours and a half. So it was uh, it was the most walking I've ever done in a day. But but we had a lot of success. We, we raised funds, and so uh, uh, I'm going to do the same thing uh, coming up this Memorial Day as well. That's outstanding, and most importantly, you ended at a pub. So well done. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, the um, the uh, the um, the pub has a very interesting history. It was it was actually, if you got the time to hear the story, um, the owner of the the owner of the pub is a man named Mark Russell, and attached uh, to the pub, uh, the pub was originally a uh, a garage for a funeral home. Um, Mark Russell is a mortician. He he owns the funeral home. It's a family business. It's been in his family for a couple generations and they had this this carriage house that wasn't being used and uh uh mark was one of the uh, fema first responders after 9 11 and he spent uh time in in a warehouse in queens new york identifying body parts from um from the uh the world trade center uh, uh collapse in the bombing and uh and so at the end of at the end of 2001, he said, "You know what? I I need to have something fun to do." So they took the carriage house for the for the for the um, uh, for the funeral home, and they completely stripped it, remodeled it, and turned it into a a, a beautiful uh, family bar and restaurant. And uh, um, and every uh, every 9/11, uh, the Russells have the uh, the Providence uh, Fire and Police uh, bagpipe band come in and play. Um, last year they couldn't do it, but they come in and play on 9/11, and then they scroll all the names of the the first responders who are lost. So it's a it's a it's a great place for me to end my walk. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it, um, gentlemen. Thank you all for being here. This was great. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So to all of our lovely listeners. Thank you for tuning in the show notes with links to all the organizations you've heard about 
uh, and all of our writers and their articles, all those show notes will be on the weeklyhavoc.podbeam.com. So you'll have Havoc Journal, you'll have my website, Savage Wonder, you'll also have everything else that you heard about. So any questions, go to the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Also on that website, there will be alibis for anything I misstated, regret saying, um, all of my mea culpas, because otherwise I will wake up at two in the morning and go, why did I say that? What was I talking about? Um, I was particularly heartbroken because last week um, I realized that the audio was crappy and I knocked myself out to write a great piece of fiction about how it ended up so crappy. And it was my homage to the Steven Seagal movies that I grew up on. And uh, I got no response to any of it. So um, <laughs> point being, I, I, my, my psychologically, I've been damaged, but I'm working on my recovery. So please go check out the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. You'll see all the show notes and any other alibis or male couples I have. Please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. If you're not already, subscribe to the podcast. Any five-star reviews on iTunes are incredibly welcomed. If you liked us, if you liked the show, if you liked what we're trying to do here, if you just generically want to support veterans, um, five-star reviews. Thank you. As always, I thank our producer, Mike Neal, for doing a great job. And I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Dave Hartman, Kevin Wilson, and Stephen B. Lewis. We will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Kevin, how's the bottle coming? Uh, well, it's uh, there's still some in it. <laughs> I, I can't hit it too hard. My wife's about to leave for work, and she'll beat me with it if I get day drunk. Uh, that's good stuff. Well, you know, you're working at the same time, so hey, two birds and one stone. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it working.